You are listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by an esteemed guest, Dr. Lydia Shapira. So Dr. Shapira is professor of medicine at Stanford School of Medicine, and she is a medical oncologist focused on cancer survivorship. Dr. Shapira's career goal is to improve outcomes and experiences of patients, as well as caregivers, living with and beyond cancer. And her research has significantly contributed to understanding and meeting the needs of the growing population of cancer survivors, or as we say, our overcomers. So we are greatly honored to have Dr. Shapira with us today to talk about cancer survivorship and guidance. So join us for the next 45 minutes to an hour as we chat with Dr. Shapira about everything survivorship and overcoming. So with that, a huge welcome to you, Dr. Shapira, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. Such an honor to have you with us. Thank you for the invitation. I am delighted to be with you today. And before we start off, thank you so much. And before we start off, I must say that we are twinning very well with our scarves. <laughs> so that's amazing. So uh, overcomers, those of you who are, who are watching and have those scarves, you know what to do next. De- wear that and send us a picture. So that would be great. So with that, um, Dr. Shapira, before we delve into details of cancer survivorship um, and you know the things that you're going to share with us, please tell us how you define cancer survivorship from your perspective? I think that's a great question. From my perspective, it's from the moment that a person hears they have cancer and for the remainder of their life. So a survivor is somebody who has been diagnosed, is going through treatment, is living with advanced disease, or has completed active treatment and is in remission or cured. All of those phases of the cancer journey, I believe, form the experience of survivorship. Sometimes for research purposes, it's important to define one particular phase of the journey. And uh, certainly our colleagues who do pediatric oncology uh, really have a very sharp separation between those who are in treatment and those considered survivors. But for the adult patients, I think a more inclusive definition for everybody who's been touched by cancer for the patients is really important. Mm -hmm. So um, according to your experience, uh, what would you say are the top concerns or the top five concerns of cancer survivors and overcomers through this entire journey of diagnosis, treatment, and remission? That's a fascinating question. And certainly people have done research to prioritize what these areas are, thinking about our listeners today and their experiences, I would say the top concerns are what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And how is this diagnosis and treatment going to impact my future and my longevity, how long I live, how I live my time, and what else is going to happen to me as a result of the cancer that I had or the treatment that I received? 
So among the top concerns of cancer survivors in general are fears that the cancer may come back, mm-hmm. are fears about how to live with some of the long-term effects or disabilities caused by cancer treatment itself, fears about relationship, employment, um, and how the cancer affected their the personal aspects of their lives or their livelihoods. So I think those are very important aspects to consider. I could definitely recite the symptoms that come to the top of the list in research, but I think a more philosophical approach is thinking about how this that has just happened to me threatens my future life, my integrity as a person, my livelihood, and those whom I love. You mentioned the word symptoms and that piqued my interest. So from a clinical standpoint, then is there a different definition of, you know? So from a clinical perspective, the symptoms that typically come to the top of the list are the fear of cancer recurrence and the anxiety about that. Mm -hmm. Things like fatigue, which often persist long after the end of cancer treatment. Um, In many cases, uh, issues related to sexual dysfunction, for instance, that affects the population that we are particularly concerned about today. Um, Issues that relate to future health risks like um, heart disease, for instance, as a result of exposure to certain drugs, Mm -hmm. cognitive dysfunction, you know, physical needs that require rehabilitation after certain cancer treatments, all of these symptoms are very important. So, and some, you know, require medical interventions. So, and depend very much on what part of the body is mostly affected. Mm-hmm. So for somebody who was treated for head and neck cancer, you can imagine speaking, swallowing, eating may be very important. For somebody who got treated for bowel cancer, you may um, certainly imagine that those kinds of issues, you know, about bowel movements or continence may be very important for people treated for ovarian cancer. It's often the pelvic and sexual complications of treatment or some of the late effects of some of the systemic treatments. For instance, many um, ovarian cancer survivors are still affected by neuropathy, Mm -hmm. which started as a result of the exposure to drugs used to treat it in the very acute phase. So the issue with survivorship and the symptoms is that it's almost like baggage that carries over. Some of it starts at the time of treatment and has to do with side effects of treatment. Sometimes it's fear of late effects, things which could happen as a result of a prior exposure to a treatment, but that may not be manifest for decades later. In some cases, heart disease or fibrosis from radiation that was received to a certain part of the body. So survivorship really means paying attention to what we call long-term side effects, meaning they start with treatment and carry on, or late effects, things which may happen years or even decades after treatment as a result of those exposures. Wonderful, thank you so much for shedding so much light on this. Um, Moving on to my next question, and you spoke about this, the fear of recurrence of the cancer coming back, right? It comes to the, it surfaces to the top, 
every single time we have spoken to our overcomers. So while we understand there is no magic formula to overcoming this anxiety, but from your standpoint and years of experience, what, what kind of guidance would you give to our overcomers um, in accepting and embracing and overcoming this fear of reference? Anything that you would? Thank you so much for opening up the conversation to this area. I think that it's worth spending some time trying to understand it, and then thinking about what can be done. And let me also tell you that from my experience, but also from very good research, we know that this fear of cancer recurrence affects not only the patient herself or the patient themselves, but also their loved ones. The care partners also suffer with this fear of cancer recurrence, and it could affect their lives as well in meaningful ways. So let me start by just normalizing the fact that it's, it's absolutely normal to think that if you've had this existential threat of cancer, that you're going to be afraid that it could come back, especially if doctors tell you that you're vulnerable to a recurrence within the first two, three, five, 10 years, whatever the cancer is. Uh, so some of it is quite normal and it's maybe triggered by the anniversary of a diagnosis, by an upcoming appointment, by a new symptom. All of this we know is quite normal. The problem is that sometimes these normal fears become really intrusive thoughts and they begin to populate and, and sort of dominate our thinking and our mindsets so that they interfere with our ability to experience joy every day, to act normally, and they really become a problem. That's when this is sort of elevated to a major symptom and one that really needs to be recognized, addressed, and treated. So our, the way what we bring to it, the way we look at it, our mindsets may help in many ways to overcome some of these normal fears. And one of the ways that you know, our group has begun to think about it is by thinking that our bodies are capable of handling it and that we are you know, forward looking and we can grow and you know, become new, our new selves in many ways. So adopting this mindset that you've had good care, that you can go forward, that your body can handle it may help. In some cases though, people get stuck or they have, they may have come into it already with some deep anxieties and this just, you know, is something that becomes overwhelming. And what I'd like to say to some of our listeners who may know somebody who's in this position or even have experiences is that there are some interventions that have been proven to help. So uh, we, there's actually been a lot of research in the last 10 years on uh, some modified uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, CBTs, that are directed exactly at this, at the fear of cancer recurrence among cancer survivors. And they have shown in randomized uh, clinical trials that these interventions are effective. So there are ways that with some special psychological interventions, some of these are things that can be done even alone with certain modules. Some of these require um, some expert help. We can help many people overcome these fears so that they can be released from that anxiety and that pain that intrudes in their lives. 
it, you know, you're never going to make the fear go away completely, but you're going to help people to be able to handle it, handle it well, and so that it doesn't really interfere with their quality of life. So CBD, um, so is that something that um, is offered for in, in, largely in all institutions? And how, so our overcomers who are interested to learn more about yeah. the CBT, wh- where should they look? What information should, where should they receive all this information so that they can get signed up? So um, could you share? So a- this is, this. I love your question and your energy. And this is something that perhaps um, is uh, maybe a little bit more tricky on the receiving end. Um, unfortunately, there are not enough mental health professionals who are trained in psycho-oncology, so it may not be a service that's easily accessible to everybody in person. So the first thing to do, I would say, is to reach out to the treating clinician and ask for a referral to a mental health professional, and then discuss with that mental health professional the availability of CBT, and it may require looking into somebody you know, in the area or the region. Um, unfortunately, our cancer centers and community practices don't have as many psycho-oncologists as people like me would like. Um, so it may require looking uh, a bit more um, extensively. And certainly for people who have um, fear of cancer recurrence that reaches the level of an anxiety diagnosis, certainly uh, a mental health professional can help. That said, There are now some trials, just as we have trials of new drugs to treat ovarian cancer, there are some trials looking at some ways of making this more accessible for everybody. So I imagine in a a few years from now, we may be able to provide people with access to tools that they can use themselves that will really help a large number of people. I'm not saying that this Uh, will ever replace the human contact of being with a professional, but it may just provide a lot more people with resources that they can use. In the meantime, I think that any form of intervention that addresses sort of mindset and, and, and helps with calm, any apps people have used, any peer groups that they may go to to get support may also help deal with some of the anxiety. But it is my hope that if you interview me a few years from now, we actually will have more to offer people in this particular space because it's really so necessary. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, in this day and age of COVID and telehealth and, you know, there are so many things that are being offered to patients virtually. So I would even say that if, if if this is a service that can be brought to the overcomers on a virtual uh, platform, you know, that's better than having nothing. So spot on, that's exactly what people are trying to do. And I would imagine that if the listeners um, are interested in our and persevere, they may be able to access such services, um, you know, even from their own home monitors. Fantastic. Fantastic. So uh, speaking of mental health, we know that it is often overlooked in the entire treatment of cancer because the way I see it, the treatment of cancer still remains clinical. I mean, the mental health side of it is not as integrated. So um, 
So in your opinion, how can we better integrate mental health management into in, the, in this overall treatment? And what should our overcomers know and ask in terms of better managing their mental health through this entire process of overcoming? That's a lovely question. I would love to hear your thoughts on this as well and your experience, uh, both personally and also what you've learned from others doing the work that you do. From my vantage point as a trained medical oncologist, you know, I'm not an expert in mental health, but oh my goodness, sometimes I feel I'm practicing, you know, psychiatry without a license because a lot of, a lot of what we do is really to uh, attentively listen to the concerns of patients, validate concerns, sometimes normalize, sometimes provide information, and sometimes actually make the recommendation that the person get some counseling because, you know, in those particular situations, perhaps they're overwhelmed mm -hmm. and they're just not functioning well. Mm -hmm. So as a, as a medical doctor and oncologist, I would say that the start of this is to recognize that we are one organism, mind and body, and, and, to, and, to, and to accept that, and not to try to compartmentalize or separate them, but to try to integrate them. And that begins a little bit with this issue of this mindset. How are we coming into this experience? Can we trust our bodies to heal? Do we feel capable of taking on the challenge? If we're not feeling capable or confident, what do we need? How can we assemble a supportive network? How can we assign tasks to our loved ones so that they will help us during difficult times? And this may be not just during the time of active treatment, but maybe, you know, a long-term ask. So how can we begin to sort of, uh, you know, uh, reflect on who we are, what we each need, to undergo this very difficult work of being treated and assuming this um, other identity as a patient, survivor, you know, however this is experienced. So uh, to be very clear, I think understanding the uh, and facing the existential threat is where it starts. Mm -hmm. Taking time to to calmly, you know, come to terms with the fact that that the situation will require some new skills, perhaps assembling a, a team and asking for help, you know, knowing that it's very difficult to do this alone, communicating as clearly as possible with the cancer treat team, identifying somebody within the team who can listen to concerns and state them and ask for help when help is needed. Find uh, good educational resources, you know, that provide reliable expert vetted information. Be comfortable about the treatment and feel, you know, trust in the people treating, uh, treating one. I think that's key. And um, learning to maybe take some time to uh, absorb all of these things and find sources of comfort. For some people, it may be in nature and solitary walks outdoors. For others, it may be prayer or some communal event. So I think that it, it requires a, you know, a reorganization and it requires a supportive network. And also very importantly, especially in our society uh, here in the United States, where we sort of value, you know, the I can do it myself 
Um, it, that's, that, that doesn't work so well when you're diagnosed with cancer and going through the treatment. So I think the idea of, of doing this more in community is important as well. Absolutely. And I do think that you, you asked me what my thoughts were on this. So I would just say, you know, simply, I, I do think that from a provider standpoint, the onus is not just upon the patient or the overcomer to manage her life, you know, and just her mental expectations. I feel like, again, integrating the mental health aspect of treatment has to be it has to be done in every institution, not like large, not only just large institutions and well-reputed institutions. And it should be, it shouldn't be an option, in my opinion. It should be your treatment includes your mental health, you know, management. So I want us to go there to where it is an integrated part. It's 50% mental health and 50% physical health, you know, come together and you become an overall healthy person is how I see it. And also from the, from the patient or from my mom, you know, I saw her firsthand. And from that perspective, I can say that embracing those days when you are actually not really up to it and nothing works and no amount of pep talk will ever do. It's okay to just feel that it's okay to embrace that you know you you may not be totally 100% every day none of us are you know cancer or no cancer so I think embracing that as we go along the journey helps us tremendously to face what is ahead of us so I couldn't agree with you more and I've been trying to say this for the last 20 years so um, I think that we've we view this exactly in the same way for me providing access to mental health should be an opt-out, not an opt-in in cancer care. Exactly. It should be part, it should be routinized. Um, and it is at our own peril that we ignore <laughs> mental health of ourselves as clinicians, our patients and their care partners. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you made a very good point also about the need to check in with caregivers or, you know, uh, in the last year, it's been so difficult because we don't see them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, that has added another whole level of, um, um, of trauma mm-hmm. uh, to this experience that we can't sort of see families or, you know, in the in the pre-COVID days, we had the pet therapists and the music therapists and the patient who came with you know, one or two uh, friends or family members who were designated to sit there during the treatment, but it was it was very different and the last year has been difficult. But even without that digression, I totally agree with you that mental health needs to be brought in um, early and often. So um, at, at the beginning, at the intake, and then during the visit, we are doing it in some ways by utilizing these survey forms of distress screening to pick up the signals of distress. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, again, that's just one way of, of approaching it. I'm a bit more of a high touch person. I wanna ask people, how are you doing? And extend that, how are you doing with this? Not just to patients, but also their care partners or their caregivers, because you know, they are often affected as well. The other point you make, which is probably worth emphasizing even to this very mature uh, group of listeners, is that some days may just suck. 
And, and there may be just a, a, a burden of symptoms that are hard to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, and while we have made a lot of progress in treatments of nausea or neuropathy or this or the other, sometimes um, the symptoms remain or the, or the medications we use to treat these symptoms have their own toxicities. <laughs> and so we may be sedated or drowsy or, or just uh, uh, uncomfortable. And it's really important to be able to face that discomfort. Um, And I think that's where also those are the important points where perhaps helping people to uh, mobilize their own inner strengths to deal with these physical, these moments of physical discomfort, to use their power of their mind to get through from one second or minute of nausea to the next. Right. Um, without panicking. These are very, very important things as well. And you're absolutely right. They um, require attention and perhaps people can get also some specialized help to learn how to mobilize their own healing powers, you know, to get through these very difficult moments. Mm-hmm. So communication between physicians and patients that's another thing that I want to learn more about and all of us want to learn more about from you I know that you have done some work on this and so tell us some of the ways in which we may improve communication between patients and physicians to make this journey a a more informed as well as a more comfortable one brilliant question so there's a lot of work that can be done Uh, I would say it starts with being prepared for the visits. Mm -hmm. Uh, So choosing the care team um, and making sure that everybody is comfortable with the care team. Uh, Cancer is now really delivered in teams. So knowing the roles of the different people on the team, what what the oncologist does, what the nurse does, what the nurse practitioner, the medical assistant, the interpreter, however many people, the scheduler, Uh, trying to have uh, a name for the different people and knowing who to contact for what is important. So first of all, uh, you know, being, uh, taking some time to assemble a team, understand who's on the team, how to, how to communicate, what the vehicles are that are open, you know, who, who do you send a message to? Who's going to answer your message? What do you do when you have an emergency? So, you know, I would say, first of all, just uh, doing the, the scan of um, and putting it down, maybe generating a list, maybe generating your own list and telling your family members, look, you know, if we, if I have pain during the night, here's where we need to call for immediate help. But if I need a refill or I have a problem with the authorization from the insurance company, these are the people on the team who handle it. So, uh, so you know, treating this like uh, almost like work. Right, uh, and having uh, having an efficient business plan for how you're going to do this, and then the effective piece of developing some connection, hopefully with somebody on the team. It may be everybody, but it may just be a few people um, that who sort of see you. I think that one of the most important lessons I've learned doing this work is that everybody wants to be known as a person, so. It, it's impossible to have everybody on the cancer team necessarily develop a personal relationship, but some people need to, and, and, you, and you need to feel known, to feel 
that comfort also of, of being sort of in, in being um, cared for uh, during what is really a very difficult time. So I think that's important. And then really to understand what's on your mind and be able to express it to somebody <laughs> um, and, and prioritize things. So if, you're, if you have a visit and you know from your experience or you've been told that the visits are typically 15 minutes or 22 minutes or whatever, then if you know that there are two things that are really important for you to discuss, you know, say them out loud and say them at the beginning. You know, I, I have two things I want to make sure that we address before the end of the visit. Is now a good time to ask them or sit, state them? But, you know, to, to really uh, be as clear as possible so you make things work for you. And then to have a tolerance for frustration. <laughs> there will be delays. There will be times when things don't go so well. And that's when the systems are tested. And to have sort of a bit of a backup plan. Um, if the visit didn't go well, maybe reach out and say, you know, I felt um, that I didn't have enough time to, to speak or I wish we, had, we could find a time to address this. If the time in the clinic before my treatment is not the right time, can we set aside a different time maybe for a phone call to discuss this? But I think that's the kind of, of work that pays off. Um, you know, uh, and uh, I think that we have to realize that uh, there will be ups and downs. Um, but what you want is uh, to establish the communication channels to be clear. And also within the family unit or the unit of the patient and their care partners to make sure that the communication is fluid there as well. That's really important. I think uh, doing this alone is hard. And having secrets makes it more complicated and it's not so good. So on this topic of communication, so I we have talked to our overcomers that will tell us that, you know, when they're um, anxious about every little symptom that may or may not be cancer, they are oftentimes uh, torn on whether they should make that phone call or, you know, come, is it over communication that you're calling and for every little symptom that you're getting and is it okay to do that? So from that standpoint, is anything over communication in this, in this whole process, you think? What would you say to our overcomers on that? So I think that's a great question. And I think some of it depends also on the symptoms and the setting. If you find yourself needing that reassurance every single day, um, I think it may be problematic <laughs> and it may be uh, an alert that there's an underlying anxiety that uh, that needs to be addressed as well. And that's, for instance, what would trigger a referral to mental health. So I think that if, for instance, you uh, have you, you want or need that reassurance, then you can talk to somebody on the cancer care team and say, look, I'm the kind of person who wants to vet my symptoms with you often. What is the best way to do it? Um, shall I send a message through the, the electronic portal? Can I call you? And again, I think that's something that needs to be figured out. If you're calling every day for months or years, there's a problem. <laughs> if you're calling after you've had, you know, an unexplained cough for, you know, several days and you're worried that it could reflect a fluid buildup or something, it's totally justified. So I think a lot depends on the setting, frankly, on, on, the, on what it is that you need to communicate 
and also asking you the question of how long can I go without getting that reassurance? And I think somewhere, somewhere in there, you have to decide if it's totally fine to be calling all the time or if it reflects a need and perhaps that need ought to be discussed and addressed. Right. It's, it's just striking that balance. That's important. Yeah. yeah. So um, you have also done some outstanding work in understanding the barriers to communication and participation in clinical trials. So um, can you please tell us more about it and any guidance you may want to share with our overcomers when it comes to those barriers of communication and how can we up uh, participation in clinical trials? Uh, that's a lovely question. Of course, we all want to have more treatments to offer patients. And that's only going to happen if we partner in research. Uh, there's just no other way. Um, so every, so thank, I want to thank everybody who's ever participated in a trial or considered participating. Sometimes people want to, but they just can't because they, they don't meet some of the very tight uh, eligibility criteria, right? But it's the idea of, of using your experience um, to um, help uh, future patients. Um, sometimes that motivation is, is intrinsic. You know, I, if, if, if I'm going through this and, you know, God forbid my daughter is diagnosed later, I want her to have access to more treatments as a result of my participation. And, you know, people can also participate in quality of life studies. So it's not just treatment trials. But just to go back to the treatment trials, um, and uh, I think the most important thing is, uh, the most important barrier is um, uh, our trust issues. Mm -hmm. um, trust that the science is good, that the researcher is honorable, that their intentions are honorable. Um, and uh, I think that's something that um, requires, you know, public education and awareness campaigns. Um, and um, I, I would suggest that your listeners um, consider that um, cutting edge research may in fact provide more treatment options for them, may expand the portfolio of treatments. Not all research trials are perhaps as exciting as others, um, but I think uh, that's where you really need, uh, especially if you have an illness like ovarian cancer, to be in touch with the world of research, to have uh, forums like the ones that you provide, where you're constantly interviewing and bringing people who are doing this research and can explain it, can explain why that research can uh, potentially benefit um, participants. Those of us who are involved in research, you know, um, hold ourselves, I would like to thank all of us, really very high ethical standards. I mean, you know, we offer research when we really think that it's something that we would do or we would advise for our best friend. Um, and it is because um, that, because we really feel that there are times in the trajectory of illness where just standard therapies may not be good enough mm -hmm. or where there may be a possibility of uh, improving outcomes by, um, adding new medications or combining medications in different ways or using them for shorter or longer periods or going on to maintenance therapies, which has been a, a big thing for um, uh, people living with ovarian cancer. So I think that uh, when we think about barriers to research, to answer your question, sometimes the barriers are geographic. Mm -hmm. You may not be able to pack up and travel to NCI or a large cancer center um, to do it. 
Sometimes the barriers are that where you are getting treatment, they don't offer you enough trials. So it requires an effort. And sometimes it may just be that, you know, it's a little scary and that's where you can do some work and research and try to think about um, what the potential um, up and downsides are and have a very frank conversation with the researcher asking more information. So I think that's basically the, the way to think about research in, in cancer. We all need it. We all need to be involved. We need to listen to the concerns of the of the stakeholders and bring those back. And I'm hoping that as we um, enter sort of new eras for research, that we will make it more participatory and provide actually more options um, to to people who are interested um, and who have ideas about how to move the field forward. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned something very important when you said that you, as researchers, you wouldn't offer something if you wouldn't offer it to your best friend. So, you know, it's like now with COVID, all these um, doctors are out there with with the pediatric uh, dose. When the 12 to 15 vaccinations came up, there were so many doctors who were posting about taking their own children in that age range to give the vaccinations and then basically say to the world and encourage others to do it. So it comes back to the same thing that, you know, if you don't believe in the research, you wouldn't offer it to anyone and you would offer it to everyone close to you even. So that makes a really good point on these clinical trials that on the safety, on the, you know, the efficacy and how they are, they're designed to treat the patient very safely. So thank you for mentioning that. Um, So symptom management is during and after treatment is something we all want to learn more about. And so um, could you kindly share your guidance on this with our overcomers and how how should we best manage the side effects that come with this, uh, particularly with the ovarian cancer treatment and um, any tips or guidance that you may have? I think that's a great question. I think there are some now now some new apps, for instance, that um, help track these symptoms. Mm-hmm. So um, there are many products available. Um, I know that, for instance, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, through their website, cancer.net, that I um, had the pleasure to, um, to lead for, for years, has a free app for um, monitoring symptoms. So that's just one example of something that's available and there are many other products. Uh, So I think uh, learning to track the symptoms is one important way of first communicating with a team about the severity of the symptoms. Second, perhaps gaining some control or recognizing there's a pattern um, which might lead to some modifications to minimize that symptom. And thirdly, tracking the um, efficiency of the interventions that are used to mitigate that symptom. So if you're, if you're having, say, nausea and you're using anti-nausea meds and so on, to having a symptom tracker may actually help identify the times when you're experiencing this, how you're using the meds. And it may be something that's easy to share with a team, with a clinical care team, and lead to insights or recommendations for change. So I think that the first thing to do is to um, understand, become knowledgeable about the symptoms 
um, learn how to manage them both with pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic interventions. Again, I'm a big uh, fan of combining drug and mind Right. Um, so that if you have anticipatory nausea, you may, you know, be able to use some uh, mindfulness interventions to deal with that instead of just popping pills, um, or do both if it's if it's absolutely necessary. So understanding the symptoms, understanding pharmacologic, non-pharmacologic interventions, tracking the symptoms, sharing that information with the team, and being being flexible and quick to to adjust. You know, if you have a symptom that's really bothersome and you don't have a good plan, that's when you want to call and say, is there something else to try? Are there other medications? And then also understand, for instance, what the trade-offs are. Um, you know, the new medicine that you're going to use to treat your neuropathy, which is bothersome, may make you drowsy. So you may need to make some adjustments. So I think that's that's part of it. I at the end of the day, you know, I think of it as work. Um, you know, you need to, you need to, the best way to manage these symptoms is to understand them as much as you can, to um, track them, to intervene, to try things, and then come up with uh, whatever you need to uh, mitigate that symptom so that it doesn't interfere with quality of life, mm -hmm. you know. Thank you for thank you for um, sharing that very very great information. And so, um, just moving on to the role of caregivers, right? So we talked about them briefly. It's so critical in this whole journey of overcoming. So uh, please share your guidance and any tips that you may have to enhance the lives of our co-survivors or co-overcomers that you know walk this path alongside the our survivors in this journey. It's so important, and especially in the last one year now going on two with COVID, uh, it's been difficult for our care caregivers. So what advice and guidance would you have for them? Uh, uh, this is such an important part of the cancer experience, right? Um, and um, the co-survivors, as you say, the co-partners or the care partners um, play an integral role. So I, my advice um, I don't think I can quite do justice to all the things that I would like to say here, but I'll just touch on a few. One is to take care of yourselves um, and to, um, you know, and that means often, you know, scanning also for the emotions that are so, so intense, right? And those emotions may be everything from love to guilt um, or, um, or everything in between wanting, you know, feeling that you want to make it better for the person you love. Um, all of these things, I think, need to be acknowledged and, and internalized, understood. Uh, taking some time for your own mental health, I think, is the advice I would also give to care partners um, and not feeling guilty about it. Um, and if there is really an intense need for physical caregiving, then having backup. I think that's also very important. So, uh, you know, there's been some interesting work in these in some of these areas to generate these caregiving atlases to sort of map out who is involved in care. There's some brilliant work being done about that to actually go through the exercise of naming the people in the household, the people who are maybe a phone call away, 
but still in the neighborhood, the people who are long distance care partners or caregivers who may want to give a lot, but they may not be able to physically come. And this is something that clearly during COVID um, has been um, exaggerated. And then think about perhaps the uh, institutional partners or community partners through agencies like visiting nurses or so on that are also involved and map it all out and see how, who's supporting who and who else needs to be supported in that, in that big, big picture, right? So I think that uh, my advice about uh, caregiving and two care partners and caregivers is, again, um, map it out, see where those strong points are, see where the gaps are. You know, there may be times in the day when you would need more support. Well, maybe there is somebody who could be brought in to provide some relief. And make sure that, again, the lines of communication are all open so that uh, you don't have people doing this um, alone. Mm -hmm. So um, that would be my advice. And then the last thing is the, the cultural piece of caregiving. You know, um, there are so many different um, roles and identities that are formed around caregiving. And sometimes, you know, relationships can deepen and sometimes they can fracture with these um, incredible threats that, that serious illness brings to, to, to this um, uh, problem. So I think that that's also something to, uh, to consider. If somebody derives great meaning in being a caregiver, that's great and we celebrate it. But if people are feeling burdened or or burned out, they may need relief. And that may be, may be shaped in part by also what the expectations are or um, you know, what the circumstances are, but also need to be taken into consideration. And like you said, you know, for the caregivers particularly, it's important to acknowledge those moments when they're feeling burned out and not feel guilty about that, because it is it is relentless and it is a it, it's it's a challenging, but it's a very worthwhile journey. But it is a challenging journey to be uh, the primary caregiver or not even primary any any form of caregiver. So it's important to embrace the fact, acknowledge the fact when you're feeling burdened and not feel guilty about that. Thank you for mentioning um, all these great points. So um, just uh, before we close, a couple questions. Um, what has changed in survivorship over the years? Now we see more and more of the uh, cancer survivors living, which is fantastic. I mean, the, the graph is continually going up. So um, what has changed in survivorship and um, how has the care of the patient through survivorship shifted and what do you, how do you see it evolving in the future? Uh, that's a great question and a good one, right? Because we, we celebrate uh, the fact that we're growing the number of cancer survivors. We're sort of sorry that people have to be have to have this diagnosis, but we're excited about the fact that you get past it and you live with it. Mm -hmm. So uh, the challenges really have to do with um, sort of integrating back into um, the, the system of medical care for many cancer survivors. The pain point is at the transition between the care team and then the primary care, going back to a community-based primary care model that may not be prepared to understand all of their needs. 
Um, I, I imagine that for many of the overcomers who are, say, on maintenance therapies, um, you know, the challenge is also to integrate with their primary care or their community um, gynecologist or others who are caring for them who may sort of not be prepared to handle all of this. So uh, that's where we're working. Uh, we're working basically to um, recognize the special services that cancer survivors may need. So um, again, it could be that there's a need for a neurologist or a you know sexual therapist or but there's also a need for basic primary care. Somebody needs to manage the hypertension. Somebody needs to look at the lipid profile. Somebody needs to think about screening for other diseases uh, to give advice about sun exposure or to manage some of the complications maybe of cancer therapy. So that's where I see a lot of the need, um, both for the survivor who needs to have the have confidence and go back to to doing all of these routine things or seeing the orthopedist when the shoulder hurts or the knee hurts um, and going back to resume their care in the integration back into work in many cases, which is difficult because there may need to be some exceptions or adjustments and not all workplaces are friendly for cancer survivors. And then, of course, the personal piece, which is that even some personal relationships may have shifted as a result of the cancer experience. So I think that as I see it, uh, it's all the work that needs to be done to reintegrate into the new normal, which is different from the prior, which has is more complex and may require attention to areas both of help or work or home living that uh, previously people just sort of took for granted. Right, right. Fascinating conversation. Like we talked about, we could stay on this for five more days, but uh, <laughs> what, what have I missed asking you, Dr. Shapira? Oh, uh, I thank you. You've been a phenomenal interviewer uh, and you have drawn all of my uh, pearls of wisdom. <laughs> out of me. Thank you for that. And the opportunity, I think that... Uh, uh, what's exciting is the conversation really is forward facing, um, you know, and a lot of what we think about in survivorship is about looking ahead, looking ahead with confidence and feeling confident about that. And I hope that some of what we discussed today will give your listeners more confidence about the future. And on that note of confidence, this is my absolute last question um, to you, which is uh, what message of overcoming would you have for our audience that's listening? Uh, don't do it alone. <laughs> Get your team, be prepared, uh, take your time. That's wonderful. Thank you so very much, Dr. Shabira. This was such a fascinating conversation. You, you have spent so much time in helping us understand so many things about survivorship. Thank you for your guidance. We're absolutely honored to have you. And um, Overcomers, hope this was beneficial for all of you. Uh, with that, we will be back with our next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep talking about ovarian cancer and you know this, together we can overcome. Thank you you and bye. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. Be sure to tune in for our next episode. Cheers to overcoming.